Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today, of course, we're going to be doing a movie episode. That's right. We've been trying to do one of these a month uh, just because there are so many, so many films we love and so many films that either have wonderful tie-ins to scientific and cultural topics that we've discussed in the show um, or, you know, they, they allow us to discuss new things and new angles that wouldn't necessarily necessitate an entire episode on their own. All right. So what's on the docket today? Well, this month we're looking at uh, really one of my – I have to say it's one of my favorite films. Uh, you know, in terms of thinking about films you saw at a definite point in your life that mm-hmm. had an impact on your 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 outlook. Uh, and the film is 1972's Silent Running. I saw it for the first time this weekend. Oh. Yeah, never seen it before. I'd seen like stills from it. I think I'd seen stills of the robots because it's a very robot-heavy film despite being uh, one obsessed with with nature and environmental themes, the robots get an awful lot of screen time. They do, yeah. And I, th- I think if, if you're having trouble picturing the film, if we just mention like geodesic domes in space with with forests in them, Bruce Dern, and then three uh, dimin- diminutive robots that kind of shamble around. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's silent running in a nutshell. Now, this was directed by Douglas Trumbull, right? Who was like a visual effects guy for many years. Yeah, yeah. He he provided special photographic effects for such classic sci-fi films as 2001 A Space Odyssey. One of the best. Yeah. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Blade Runner, and then later on uh, uh, The Tree of Life. Hmm. Uh, and then uh, his, it was in the family, too, because his father was a special effects pioneer who worked on 1939's The Wizard of Oz. You can really feel the spirit of the 60s in this movie from 1972, but maybe you can also feel the despair of the 70s in it. It's the, both of those spirits come crashing together in Silent Running. Yeah, I thought about, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, in part because we're, we're researching episodes about psychedelics and about psychedelic research and then the the decades in which uh, actual medical uh, research regarding psychedelics just completely languished. Mm-hmm. And it, it always makes me think of Hunter S. Thompson's commentary about the uh, the, the wave of the, of the 1960s crashing and falling back. Right. Uh, and, and once again, I think, uh, you know, that ties into uh, to, to this film as well. Uh, before we continue, though, let's let's have just a, a quick audio sample from the original trailer for Silent Running, just to remind everybody a little bit about what we're talking about here. Space convoy on a strange voyage, carrying a rare cargo. The forests, the plants, the growing things doomed to extinction on Earth. We have just received orders to abandon and nuclear destruct all the forests and return our ships to commercial service. And we're going home! You can't blow up this forest. Silent running. Cataclysm in outer space. Every moment bringing its own danger as man explores the mysteries of an unknown and limitless universe. 
Valley Forge, Valley Forge, what the hell's wrong? You're moving out, you're accelerating. I've got a premature detonation on dome number two, and I've got an explosion in the main cargo deck. Now, please advise me immediately. So I think we have a taste in that that trailer. This is a very ranty film. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. A lot of the movie also, besides the scenes with robots just kind of hanging out and not really executing much, uh, much having to do with furtherance of the plot, just moving around and doing things, there's also a lot of Bruce Dern chastising the camera and giving sermons to other characters uh, about their lack of appreciation for nature. Yeah, so it's it's a very it's a very weird movie in that regard and you know that thinking you, you talked about how you watched it for the first time just the other day. I watched it for the first time probably like on a Sunday afternoon uh, on cable TV in the 90s. Uh, when I was like in junior high, I guess, uh, and and it, you know, it aired on A and E, just like matinee showing of it, and uh-huh. I just like turned over to it and was just sucked in uh, by this film that you know, doesn't have much in the way of of action. There's there are a few key action scenes, but it is not an action film. Uh, it is a it is an environmental science fiction film. Uh-huh. I mean, I'd also say it's not even really a very plot heavy film. There, no. There's basically a situation. And that situation comes about and then that's about it. I mean, a huge swaths of the runtime are just characters kind of hanging out. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it benefits, I think, from three major factors. Uh, you know, if we're just to sort of pull these out and I realize that's complicated when you try and like pull the, the key elements out of a picture when everything needs to essentially be a cohesive whole. And, and I think in this picture is. But you have Bruce Dern's performance, mm. which is is fabulous. I mean, Bruce Dern is uh was and is a, an acting treasure. I mean often relegated to the the villain roles for sure. Uh but capable of much more. And I think we see uh uh we we see a little bit of that in this film. And then the other key aspects of this are that the the, the sets look fabulous. Um the uh, the models look fabulous. The effects are all wonderful. Uh and you have uh you have some wonderful music in the film too. So Again, this this film is a product of the late 1960s, spilling over into the early 1970s, uh, and and it is it's for several reasons. For starters, the the studio apparently decided to give uh, more first time directors a shot after the success of 1969's Easy Rider, uh, which was directed by Dennis Hopper. That mm-hmm. was uh, Dennis Hopper's first uh, directorial directorial uh, uh, feature. And uh, and anyway, the the films to come in the wake of that uh, included Silent Running. Uh, also, uh, the music. Uh, so Joan Baez uh, submitted uh, like two two songs for this film, Silent Running and Rejoice in the Sun, both of which are, are prominently featured. And uh, for anyone not familiar with Joan Baez, first of all, go look up Joan Baez. And, and these songs in particular are currently on streaming services. But she was a major social and political musical force of the 1960s and beyond, playing at the original Woodstock and she's always advocated civil rights, environmentalism, and human rights, uh, including LGBTQIA plus rights. Um, so, I mean, all these elements, I think, really give it a, a feel that, uh, that sets it apart from everything else. Like, so if you were watching, looking around for any kind of science fiction on TV in the, in the late 90s, like this stood out. This was a different type of space and robots film. It's from another dimension. I mean, it's yeah. got, it, it really does have this feeling of the 60s and 70s culture coming together, but also it's a very weird combination of elements. It's got these robots, but the environmental themes. It's got the these great special effects, so like practical miniature effects, mm-hmm. you know, which are, I, watching movies like this really just makes me 
simmer with rage at the CGI age. You know, I'm so sick of all the CGI spaceships. I wish they'd bring back the miniature models and, you know, in the backdrops and the painted sets and everything. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, they were so good. And those skills still exist. Uh, they're just not being employed uh, for the most part uh, with motion pictures. Yeah, but then you've got that. And so those like sci-fi special effects are clashing with just really in-your-face Joan Baez musical numbers. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's a strange, unique kind of movie. I don't, I can't think of another thing I've seen like it. So let's talk just a little bit about the plot, just to remind everybody who's seen it before and refresh everyone else. We're gonna, I, I guess, we're, I think we're gonna avoid any real spoilers here in terms of the end of the film. But uh, you know, if you want to go into the film spoiler free, pause this uh, this podcast, <laughs> go watch it, and then come back. So the basic synopsis: it's the future. The planet Earth is essentially dying. A great dying has ravaged botanical life on our planet, and the remaining shreds of botanical life and some animal life now thrive solely within a series of geodesic domes that are affixed to a spaceship called the Valley Forge. And the Valley Forge is orbiting just outside the orbit of Saturn. And here, a four-person crew tends to things. That includes botanist Freeman Lowell, who's our our main character. Played by Bruce Dern. Mm -hmm. And three helper robots named Huey, Dewey, and Louie. (laughs) Well, originally, no. Originally, they have robot names. They're called like Drone Number 1 and Drone Number 2. And then Bruce Dern, in a a moment of sort of magical thinking, names them. And it's at that moment that they seem to acquire personalities that they don't seem to have had before. Yeah, Yeah, and this occurs later. When it's uh, when it's just Dern. So how does it just become a situation of only Bruce Dern's character and three robots? Well, basically, one day an order comes down uh, that all the forests have to be jettisoned and detonated uh, with nuclear bombs, with nuclear weapons. Yes, uh, and and then the and the rest of the crew just takes this in stride. They're like, "All right, it's time to go home. Time to ditch these uh, these forests and head back." But Lowell. Uh, is is very upset by this and finally breaks and betrays his fellow crew members to save one of the, the to save the last forest pod. Mm. And uh, he ends up faking a malfunction and then takes off through Saturn's rings with the world's last forest. And, uh, you know, what follows is a story of, of survival, loneliness, thus the, the naming of the robots and the, the bonding with the robots, uh, but then also, you know, this this environmental message. Yeah, and it's clear that the orientation of the film is a, is a pro-environmentalist one, though it's not quite clear exactly how much we're supposed to agree with everything Dern says. I mean, Dern's character gives these monologues where he he excoriates his crew members for being satisfied with this horrible synthetic existence that they're living where, you know, they they only eat this prepackaged freeze-dried junk that that they got as rations from Earth, whereas he picks, you know, living fruits and vegetables from the forest. He picks cantaloupes and he sits mm-hmm. there eating cantaloupe and and just like uh, attacking them for putting that garbage in their mouth. Uh, and and talking about how they don't care about the trees and they don't care about the forest and they really they don't seem to care they're just not bothered by the fact that Earth doesn't have any forests anymore they just want to get home and seemingly uh, you, you are led to believe that they would be happy with the life of sort of uh, bland synthetic consumer existence in entirely artificial environments with no exposure to plants or animals so in a sense it's it's like Bruce Dern's character is the the spirit of the 1960s speaking to these denizens of the 1970s and saying, like, how can how can you do this? Mm-hmm. Like, how can you abandon these principles? Um, 
And uh, and in doing so, yeah, Bruce Dern's character, his performance is very abrasive at times. You know, he yeah. comes off as a real curmudgeon uh, and, uh, you know, though also an idealist. And it's, it is a kind of an interesting experiment, experiment to sort of take that apart and figure out, well, what's, why is he so abrasive? Is he, is he supposed to be ab- so abrasive? Uh, how are we supposed to feel about him? Um, is part of this just what happens when you cast a character actor like Bruce Dern in this role? Uh, Bruce Dern, who had just come off, this was just on the heels of the film The Cowboys, in which he killed John Wayne's character. By shooting him in the back. Yeah. I mean, that's like the (laughs) ultimate dishonorable scumbag move in the Western genre. Yeah. Uh, Except maybe cheating by drinking clean water. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he played a real real villain in in that picture. Uh, And interestingly enough, I was looking around at reviews from when this came out, Uh and Dern's casting, it seems to be a divisive aspect of the film. So some critics thought he was great. Like critics who maybe were a little lukewarm on other aspects of the film were like, well, Bruce Dern's terrific in it, though. While others uh, said, hey, it's really difficult to empathize with this character uh, and that ultimately perhaps Dern's performance ends up hurting the message of the film. I don't, I don't think I would go that far. But, you know, obviously he's an actor who already had a career based on playing at times dislikable characters. And uh, and he's still going strong in that department uh, today at age 83. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I wonder what the equivalent of this casting would be today. Like who's somebody that you would cast – uh, in this role where they they wouldn't be like this divine messenger of uh, environmental hope but would come off maybe uh, a bit abrasive. I would like to see a movie uh, that's got an environmental conservation message where the champion of the environment is Michael Ironside. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's even more difficult to picture. Uh, you can't destroy these forests. Ironside is clearly um, an actor that was made to play the sort of character who gets who gets jettisoned aboard uh, uh-huh. the, the forest and, uh, <laughs> and exploded. Uh, not so much the savior of the of the pods. But they're different types of uh, villain actors, right? I mean, I feel like Michael Ironside is the classic heavy. He's the yeah. henchman, the tough guy, the tough bad guy. Bruce Stern is more kind of the scumbag. Yeah, he played. Yeah, he did play a lot of like like sniveling scumbag characters in his in his. In his life, so yeah, this is something that I still don't have a firm answer for, like how how I feel about his performance. But I feel like one of the reasons I connected with the film so much as a kid is that like here's this guy who is a loner, you know, and and like here I am, you know, as a junior high kid who's you know has seems to have nothing in common with anybody else in my school, and and you know I can I can connect with him on some level, and his only friends they're robots. I would love to have had robots as friends, you know, at the time, and and so you know that kind of, that that spoke to me as well. And of course, he's an idealist. He's trying to he's doing this thing that is that uh, that he sees as very heroic, and I feel like everybody at that age especially connects with that. And uh, yeah, and then as 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 you grow older, I think a role like this you keep coming back to, and maybe you end up being more forgiving of of uh, of the character's faults because you're like you agree with the the basic idea. Maybe you don't agree with his use of murder, <laughs> right? But, but still, you're you you agree with his his basic I, I ideology here that mm-hmm. you know the the forests are worth saving, that nature is worth saving, and that that connection is is vital and human. Well, it really does ask you to think about something that that becomes more profound the more you think about it. What is the inherent value of nature? And this is something we'll come back to as we discuss more about the movie uh, later on in the episode. But we often today 
Think about environmental conservation in terms of the material benefits to humans provided by the mm -hmm. you know, by environmental conservation. You you don't want to destroy natural habitats. You don't want to uh, deforest the landscape and all that kind of stuff because it does lots of bad things. When, you know they're they're cascading negative effects throughout the world when you do that. Um, but there there's also a, a deeper question. It's like what if there was just one forest left in a dome out in space and it wouldn't affect anybody on Earth? Well, whether or not that dome stayed alive, would you fight to save that forest? Does the forest have value in itself? Mm. Anyway, we can return to that. Uh, so I thought maybe we should explore the, the sort of pure scientific question of growing plants in space. Could you grow a forest in space inside a geodesic dome on a spaceship? If so, how would you do it? And do scientists who think about space colonization take this idea seriously? What kind of challenges do they expect? So just because it's a recent example that I read about, I want to talk for a minute about the the Chinese moon lander. I hope I, I want to pronounce this right. I think it's the Chengu Four. Oh uh, yes, this is named for uh, the goddess who um, who resides on the moon, um, the 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 the, uh, the wife of the great archer. Right. So the the archer Yi shoots down the nine surplus suns, mm -hmm. leaving just the one sun. As a result, he gets the elixir of immortality, and his wife Chunga. Is I think there are different versions of the story about how she drinks it, but she ends up drinking it and then goes to the moon to live there. Right. Um, and so, of course, that that's a good name for a lunar lander, right? And there have been four of these now, these these four different lunar missions from the Chinese space program. Uh, this is the fourth in the series. And in January of 2019, the Chang'e-4 lander set down on the far side of the moon, the side that always faces away from the Earth, of course, because the moon is tidally locked. So it landed in this massive impact basin on the far side of the moon called the South Pole Aitken Basin, specifically within a crater called Von Karman. And one of the experiments brought along on the Chang'e 4 mission was a biological payload of cotton seeds inside a tiny biosphere, which was supplied with soil, water, a small contained atmosphere chamber, and a heater. And after the spacecraft landed, the seeds hatched, and the Chinese space program even published a little photo from the inside of the chamber with green sprouts on the far side of the moon. And it, it's pretty cool. I've got a picture here for you to look at, Robert. It looks like a little jungle of spinach underneath the plastic net. Yeah, and the, the plastic net kind of looks like a, a, one of the domes from, uh, from Silent Running. Purely, oh, yeah. purely by accident. Uh, but of course, it was not to be. It would not last very long. The heater in the little biosphere did not hold out. And so when the night set in on the far side of the moon, of course, the moon has, you know, longer days and night cycles because of its tidal locking with the Earth. Uh, when the night set in on the far side of the moon, local temperatures reached about negative 52 degrees Celsius or negative 62 degrees Fahrenheit. And the cotton sprouts froze and died about a week after the experiment began. And furthermore, the Chinese media reported that the cotton seeds were not the only species within the biosphere, which also contained a uh, Grapeseed, potato, uh, Arabidopsis, which is a brassica plant that is often deployed in space missions and uh, experiments with growing plants beyond Earth, as well as fruit flies and yeast. And apparently, 
nothing except the cotton registered any growth. So it can be hard to grow life in space. And, and this was in a sealed container on the relatively nearby moon. Like, wouldn't the problem get even harder if you're talking about trying to grow a whole ecosystem, an entire forest in a ship in deep space? It seems like an almost impossible problem, right? Right, yeah. And of course, in Silent Running, like we begin with the, the forest being situated further away from the planet. And then developments in the plot just lead it to greater distances. Exactly. Uh, so the, the Chung'e 4 experiment was by no means the first attempt to grow plants beyond Earth. Uh, I think it was the first attempt to grow them on the moon. There have been many experiments over the decades with growing plants in space. Lots of early space missions involved simply carrying seeds into space and then bringing them back to Earth to see if they would grow normally. I think there was concern about how primarily radiation, but perhaps other space conditions, maybe microgravity and so forth, how these would affect the seeds. You know, would they grow normally if you just brought them back and planted them? And in general, the seeds taken into space seem completely unaffected. You bring them home and they're fine. In fact, all throughout the United States, you can visit so-called moon trees. These are trees planted in public spaces from seeds that were taken into orbit uh, around the moon by the Apollo 14 command module, and they grew fine. You can actually, like, look up lists of these and see if you can visit a moon tree near you. But the first plants actually grown from seeds in space were of the species uh, Arabidopsis thaliana, which is uh, one of the same plants that the Chinese lander brought this year, but which did not sprout. And this was aboard the Russian space station, the Salyut, in 1982. And since then, lots of plant experiments have been conducted, and astronauts regularly experiment with cultivating plants on the ISS. So I guess the question is, what have we learned from all these experiments? What's it like to grow plants in space? Uh, so a few takeaways, as noted by Dr. Annalisa Paul, an investigator on the Advanced Plant Experiment, or APEX Experiment. Uh, number one, of course, seeds taken into space and then returned to Earth consistently grow and don't show any changes. But if you let the seeds germinate in space, there are differences in how they grow. Uh, at first, we expected like the trophic patterns, the, the growth patterns in plant development to be different because of gravity, right? You would think that the well, gravity pulls the roots down and that's how they know to grow downward. But actually, that's not entirely what we find. Some experiments have found that, that some plants are extremely sensitive to even very, very tiny amounts of gravity and can detect very, very weak gravitational fields and be manipulated by them. But also plants tend to just grow toward light with their roots generally growing in the opposite direction from the light uh, but with individual patterns determined by their genes. Also, the directionality of light is very important in determining growth patterns for plants in space. If there's a clear light source uh, from one direction, like the sun would be on Earth, the plants tend to grow toward that. But if the light source is diffuse, like the sort of lighting, that you know, the soft lighting you would get in a closed room, then their growth patterns are often very different and can be altered from what you would normally see on Earth. Uh, now, despite the fact that we've and discovered that healthy plants can grow in the absence of gravity, the lack of gravity in a space station environment can still present a lot of problems for growing plants. If you just stop and think about it for a second, you can probably imagine what some of them are. Like, think about this. You, you couldn't have a regular forest with a soil floor 
in microgravity because the soil would float off everywhere. The water wouldn't sink into the soil when it was applied correctly. Mm -hmm. You'd have to have some kind of like, you know, controlled surface or like sometimes when astronauts grow plants on the ISS, they grow them out of these sort of packets of soil. That are, it's almost like a package. You see this that's oh, enclosed, yes. yeah. but it's got something inside it. It's like cat litter that's got fertilizer in it. Mm -hmm. um, and so you could maybe do something like that, but you, you couldn't have a totally natural forest-type environment in the absence of gravity. So in order to have something like depicted in Silent Running, you would absolutely have to have artificial gravity. And you know from our previous discussions, no magic fixes allowed here, right? Uh, as far as we know now, you would have to simulate gravity through acceleration. And you can go back to our artificial gravity episode for more on how that might work. But I'll just say, short story, your best bet would probably seem to be some kind of huge rotating cylinder with the forests in Inside it. Uh, on the other hand, that does present additional problems for energy, right? Forests need sunlight to grow. And if you can't simply angle them toward the sun because, of, you know, they'd have to be on the inside of the cylinder to mm -hmm. benefit from the effects of gravity, then you need an appropriate artificial light source. Or at least some sort of complex reflective uh, system, like something yeah. that, would, uh, that would, would give them the constant sunlight they need. Right. Uh, however, if you don't care about simulating a full natural environment with a whole equal ecosystem and a soil floor and all that, your options really do expand to include hydroponic containers and packet-contained soil beds with growth via exposure to artificial grow lights and all that. Uh, but then, again, also some of the benefits might be reduced by some of those limitations. And this is useful for a lot of reasons. Researching plants in space is not just sort of a lark. I mean, right. it's useful for one thing because knowledge about how plants grow in space can actually be useful for agriculture back on Earth. You can isolate variables in space that you can't isolate on Earth. Uh, but it's also useful for long-term space mission planning because, as Silent Running argues, we really can't live without plants. Like, any truly long-term space colonization efforts, if they're ever going to be realized, it's, it's going to be really hard to do them entirely in metal boxes with pre-packed rations. Those things eventually expire. Uh, rehydratable, irradiated, or thermostabilized shrimp cocktail is only going to take <laughs> you so far. Uh, at the very least, long-term astronauts or Mars colonists need to be able to grow their own food. And that's just food. That's not even talking about, uh, you know, whole ecosystems and the, the environmental benefits they bring beyond growing crops. Right. This is just about what potatoes am I going to eat tonight? Uh, and I was reading a 2019 article by Marina Corin in The Atlantic, uh, and I don't think I knew this fact before. Astronauts actually have been allowed to eat plants that they grew on space stations. Oh, okay. Apparently, the uh, Russian cosmonauts uh, have been eating stuff on space stations for a long time, since around 2003, I think. Uh, they've been allowed to eat half the crops they grew in their experiments, including early crops of a type of lettuce called Mizuna, which is, I think, a, a type of Japanese mustard greens. They've been allowed to eat uh, peas they grew there. I think they tried to grow tomatoes, but the crop failed. Um, and, and there have been others since then. In 2015, I believe it was, yeah, yeah, uh, to read from Marina's article, quote, astronauts have already made a space salad. In 2015, astronauts on the space station were allowed to try the leaves of a red romaine lettuce that was cultivated in NASA's first fresh food growth chamber. They added a little balsamic dressing and took a bite. That's awesome, the NASA astronaut Kel Lindgren said then, tastes good. Uh, and I love red romaine. It's my favorite for salads at home. So uh, that's a good choice there. 
Yeah, well, a lot of the uh, the, the foods that we we gravitate towards, like the artificial ones, uh, you know, the argument is that like a potato chip is so uh, satisfying because you know it's fatty, it's salty, and all this, but it also has a crispness uh, to it, as if we have uh, discovered in the potato chip bag a crisp vegetable. Uh, like <laughs> lettuce that is ready for our uh, consumption. Well, one of the things when you look up these pictures of like the the lettuce greens growing on the ISS, they look like really high quality to me. Maybe, yeah. maybe I'm just hungry while I'm looking at the picture or something, but I'm like, yeah, I want to eat that. They don't look like, you know, limp and sad produce, the kind of limp and sad produce you sometimes find at the grocery store yeah. when it's already been picked over. Uh, they, they look like really good, like the best stuff you could find at a really good farmer's market. Awesome. Now, in, in mentioning the uh, – I want to go back to gravity for just a second because I want to make it clear that what we see in silent running, what is depicted there, there's no attempt to depict any kind of rotation no. or acceleration-based. It's schedule. just magic. It's just magic gravity. And in, ultimately in science fiction, we're off, we, we are often very forgiving of that. I mean, ultimately, sure. this picture is based in sort of the, the more the metaphorical scenario here of here is a portion of the world's dead forests sustained – within an artificial environment, and they're just kind of uh, attached to the to the sides of the Valley Forge. Yeah. In many ways, a science fiction film, can, even a good one, can be kind of like a science experiment. You know, they, they isolate variables. They're, you know, yeah. they're not always going to spend a lot of time getting every detail accurate. They're more like focusing on some key themes, and they want you to contemplate a scenario to, you know, have you see what you think about it. Uh, sci-fi films, I think, are often like they're, – they're like the thought experiments that people do in philosophy classes. You yeah. Know? Uh, when, when you ask about the philosophy class, like, wait, why was Don Donald Davidson walking in the swamp when he got turned into the, you know, it, by the lightning strike, turned into the swamp man. Well, that detail is not important. Just ignore that. Uh, and I think the gravity in Silent Running is kind of like that. It's just like a detail that they don't want to be bothered with. Uh, though, you know, some some audiences do get bothered by those things uh, even so. And we're going to bring up Carl Sagan in a minute and, and that'll be uh, – <laughs> That'll be a point that sticks with him, I think. But anyway, to sum up about growing plants in space. So I would say the summary is learning how to grow plants in space is very important for the future of space travel and uh, and even just for knowledge that we can apply in the present day on Earth. Plants do seem to grow just fine in microgravity conditions, but they sometimes need a lot of special care because of those conditions. Uh, special growing habitats, plenty of the right kind of artificial light, special applications of water and nutrients, atmosphere spheric management because, of course, they need access to CO2 to grow their bodies. Uh, and never forget, you know, th this is sort of a tangent, but you, when you breathe out, the CO2 in your breath is later taken in by a plant and made into leaves and wood. Mm. Plants are made of your breath. And we'll get back to that a little later as well. Uh, but also, you know, growing entire ecosystems that simulate Earth ecosystems like a full forest, it's not – I would say I don't know of any facts that make it impossible in principle, but you would encounter – a lot more challenges related to energy and gravity and environmental chemistry and the atmosphere and all that. And finally, uh, just to point out, a lot of the, the future of extraterrestrial botany research is probably going to be focused on how to grow plants on Mars given those specific local conditions rather than in microgravity. Uh, because if you're going to Mars and you want to grow plants there, you can just like freeze seeds and take them with you. You don't have to be growing plants all the way there. Right. And, uh, you know, based on uh, you know some of the the, the Recent discussions that I've uh, I've been 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 privy to uh, regarding like traveling to Mars, like it, it we we could pack enough. I mean, it, it's kind of a 
it, you know, it's a, there, there's a lot of thought that goes into exactly how much you would need to bring and then how you're going to sustain yourself when you, when you, when you, once you get there. But uh, the, 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 the trip to Mars is the sort of trip in which we, yes, you could surround yourself with the plants, uh, with the food and water that you would need. And actually surrounding yourself with the food and water would help uh, protect you from, uh, potentially protect you from uh, radiation. That's right, a hazard suit made out of sandwiches. Yeah, essentially. Made out of shrimp cocktail. Essentially, yeah. <laughs> or made out of water, I guess. And and, yeah. and the food. has got a lot of water in yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah, food, food and water uh, protecting you. Uh, so don't eat too much of it. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we should take a quick break. And then when we come back, we will talk about Carl Sagan and Silent Running. All right, we're back. Yeah, so one of the, the, the benefits of this being a major science fiction film that came out uh, in the early 1970s is that Carl Sagan was around to see it himself and to comment on it. Yeah, and he, he mentions it in an article that was published in the New York Times on May 28, 1978, called Growing Up with Science Fiction. Now, this article isn't focused on silent running, but he devotes a paragraph to it in the article. And more generally, he talks about uh, science fiction. And it, it's a great article, I think. Yeah, it's Collected in uh, Broca's Brain, Reflections on the Romance of Science, uh, which was published in 1979, still very, very available. I picked up a copy of this in the last couple of years and read it. Uh, the whole book is an excellent uh, uh, read. And yeah, this particular chapter, this particular paper uh, discusses works that he both admires and criticizes. And yeah, it's not only a great read in and of itself, but uh, I would say it's also a wonderful place to get some fresh reading ideas. I yeah. mean, fresh in terms that they haven't been updated since <laughs> the late 1970s. But still, he he mentions a number of important works of science fiction, uh, you know, stuff that he grew up on as a kid, stuff that he learned about later, stuff that he thinks what he thought was really solid, mm-hmm. stuff that uh, you know he had other you know decent things to say about it. Like I, I've at times thought, well, we really need like a Sagan sci-fi book club in which we just use this particular um, chapter in the book uh, as a guideline uh, and just read everything that Sagan's discussing here, including the stuff that he was critical of. He recommends Dune, by the way. Yeah, yeah he does. Got to that in there. Uh, so, say, yeah, Sagan tells the story of how he fell in love with science fiction at the age of 10 and how his adolescent adoration for science fiction actually, in the end, led him to real science. Like, he tells stories of how there were these sci-fi stories with unanswered questions and inconsistencies that he wanted resolved because they were intriguing and found real science as basically as a way to get to the bottom of them, to get real answers to the questions posed by science fiction. Uh, but he also talks about his frustration with science fiction stories where uh, characters don't know scientific facts that it makes no sense for them to be unaware of. And one example he gives is Silent Running. So and, Yeah, and, and to, to, to drive home what he's talking about here, the, the Lowell character in Silent Running, played by Bruce Dern, is supposed to be a botanist and an ecologist. Yes. Uh, he's Yeah, so he's a space botanist. He's space Lorax. As, uh, <laughs> I don't know if anybody's called him that. Space Lorax. It's similar, yeah, the Lorax and Dr. Seuss's Lorax is also, uh, you know, he speaks for the trees and the environment and is perceived as being abrasive and obnoxious and, mm-hmm. uh, and in the way of uh, – 
of you know of, of the the advancement of uh, the corporate world. Right. Uh, so so Dern is a botanist who takes these plants out and he's flying them out into deep space, farther and farther away from the sun. Uh, and the the forests are dying, and he doesn't know why, and he's trying to figure it out. And I guess this is a semi spoiler, but it's a movie from the seventies. Eventually, it's revealed that oh, the problem was they need sunlight. <laughs> <laughs> and they weren't getting enough sunlight because he, I guess, flew them too far away from the sun. Right. Even forgiving the character a little bit and thinking, well, he's recovering from an injury. He's super lonely. And maybe, you know, there's some mental uh, health issues that are arising out of that. And perhaps he's being bombarded with uh, with cosmic rays. Still, that's a big one to miss as a botanist. Yeah, I would say so. And, and uh, Sagan thinks that too. So, quote, in Douglas Trumbull's technically proficient science fiction film Silent Running, the trees are dying in vast space-borne closed ecological systems on the way to Saturn. After weeks of painstaking study and agonizing searches through botany texts, the solution is found. Plants, it turns out, need sunlight. Trumbull's characters are able to build interplanetary cities but have forgotten the inverse square law, and that refers to the fact of uh, radiation becoming exponentially weaker as mm. it gets farther away from the source. Um, and that has to do with the three-dimensional nature of space. But also, uh, he continues, I was willing to overlook the portrayal of the rings of Saturn as pastel-colored gases, but not this. Uh, so he's really bothered by the fact that that, uh, that Dern's character would not have been aware of this. It just he, – he can buy a lot, but he can't buy that. You know, and I, I suspect that I was reading about sort of the origins of the the story for Silent Running, and I think part of this might have to do with the fact that the, the the original story, like starting off early versions of the screenplay, apparently didn't have the protagonist as a botanist, hmm. and he he basically like broke free and ran off with the forest, not because he cared about the forest, but because he just wanted to be left alone and he didn't want to go back to Earth, hmm. which. It doesn't sound nearly as interesting, but right. I wonder if this is a case where, you know, the, the, the story evolves and as it evolves, it doesn't, com you know, completely um, remove or it creates some problems that might not have been there originally, such as this. Like you have to have this character run away from the, 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 the uh, uh, run further away from the sun and then encounter problems. But it's complicated by the fact that now you've made him a botanist. I mean, I would think that by the time you're at the orbit of Saturn, you're already sufficiently far away from the sun for the, those uh, those yeah. solar rays to really not be helping your your forests like they should. Right. So it's from Sagan, especially. This is a this is a a solid uh, criticism of the film. I do also think it's always interesting, just as a, a little thing about each individual person's personality, what's the breaking point for you in a suspension of disbelief scenario? Mm -hmm. you're, you're engaging with the fictional narrative and you're okay with this but not with that. And everybody's got those little things that they're not okay with. Wh what is it about, uh, about the character lacking this important piece of knowledge that's the breaking point for Sagan, whereas these other things like the fake artificial gravity and all that aren't? Yeah, I mean, a p part of it is like there are certain things that are just so universally broken in our science fiction that we just don't think about it, like there being sound in space, mm -hmm. uh, like just open sound in space, or, uh, for, or, or certainly the the magical gravity scenario, like those. That's just all over the place, and you just you just come to expect it. Mm -hmm. um, but with this, yeah, maybe it's just a part of it just being more central to the, the plot. Uh, now, certainly this is not something I thought about when I watched it uh, in junior high. 
and uh, and 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 I'm I'm very forgiving of the film. I think overall, but uh, in retrospect, it does seem like a, a major blunder. <laughs> Just a couple other notes from Sagan's article just because I thought they were interesting and I wanted to mention them. One fact he points out is that science fiction authors are often quicker to adapt to new scientific knowledge than supposedly true accounts of space are. Hmm. Uh, I just want to read a quote here. It is satisfyingly rare to find a science fiction story written today that posits algae farms on the surface of Venus. Incidentally, the UFO contact mythologizers are slower to change, and we can still find accounts of flying saucers from a Venus which is populated by beautiful human beings in long white robes inhabiting a kind of Cytherian Garden of Eden. The 900-degree Fahrenheit temperatures of Venus give us one way of checking such stories. Hmm. I do think that's kind of interesting. People intentionally weaving clearly fake narratives that are meant to be fiction are often quicker to adapt to new information about the planets and stuff than people trying to tell supposedly true stories are. I wonder if, if this is part of the reason that um, the John Carter movie um, uh, didn't do so well at the box office. Hmm. Uh, did you ever see this when it came out? No, I didn't. Uh, you know, it's, it's based on the work of... Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Edgar Rice Burroughs. I was about to say William uh, Burroughs. <laughs> William S. Burroughs. <laughs> that would have been a very, <laughs> been a very different film. But um, it, it's it's an entertaining film. But it is it is based on this this older pulpy sci fi vision of Mars. Uh-huh. And indeed, it's based on books that uh, Sagan discusses uh, um, in uh, in the, the the paper that we're discussing here. Sagan where, loved them. When yeah, he, was he loved a kid. them when he was a kid, and he he mentions how he came back to them later, and he was like, "Oh, I, this just is not working. It's magic." on me anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he still makes the case for the for the usefulness of science fiction and not just in wetting the appetites of young people for education about real science. The, that is part of it. Uh, I want to read a couple quotes here. Quote, The greatest human significance of science fiction may be as thought experiments, as attempts to minimize future shock, Mm -hmm. as contemplations of alternative destinies. This is part of the reason that science fiction has so wide an appeal among young people. It is they who will live in the future. No society on Earth today is well adapted to the Earth of 100 or 200 years from now. If we are wise enough or lucky enough to survive that long, we desperately need an exploration of alternative futures, both experimental and conceptual. And later he says, quote, I think it is not an exaggeration to say that if we survive, science fiction will have made a vital contribution to the continuation and benign evolution of our civilization. I love that. Uh, I want to touch briefly on the concept of future shock. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a couple older episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind that dealt with this that I recorded with uh, with Julie Douglas uh, back in the day. But this is referring to the book, the 1970 book Future Shock by Alvin and Heidi Toffler. Um, I I think Alvin alone had credit on the original publication, but uh, his wife wrote it with him and they uh, had co-author status on subsequent books. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it was a very influential uh, book that was talking about just the idea that technology was was advancing uh, and is advancing, you know, so swiftly that it it kind of reduces one to a state of shock. Yeah. Uh, And uh, it's – it's a little more nuanced than that, but that's the basic idea. There's also there also also a wonderful TV documentary version of it, uh-huh. narrated by Orson Welles, <laughs> uh, that is tremendously entertaining in its in its own right, uh, but also kind of uh, you know hypes everything up a little bit. 
this is funny from the 1970s, right? You know, from our perspective, it seems like technology has only accelerated since then, you know, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the realms of com- consumer technology, you know, how, yeah. how much our individual lives have been changed by especially communications technology. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I the, the concept of future shock, I think, you know, a, a few years ago, like basically when I recorded that episode with Julie about it, I, I kind of viewed it more as something that was archaic or something that was maybe maybe didn't match up with modern reality. But now, uh, years later, uh, now that I'm I'm 40 years old, I I, I feel future shock a lot more. Yeah, I, like I, there's an, there's enough advancement going on that I'm like, whoa, hold on a little bit. I think I, sometimes I feel like things are moving a bit too fast. Not to criticize technology and the rate of te- technology, but I wonder if future shock, to whatever extent it exists, also depends on just how how long you've been in the stream of time, you know, and what level of technology you kind of grew uh, comfortable with. Well, one thing that I do think is interesting about Silent Running Mm -hmm. is that it – in this main character, we've got a character who is a fierce sort of prophet of the woods. Mm -hmm. He is a a priest of the forest and an advocate of the pure, undisrupted environment and and ecology. But at the same time, he's not technophobic – uh, at least not – like he he enjoys the company of the robots. He even you can see him being tech, technologically proficient. Like he reprograms the robots himself and uh, messes around with them. And I feel like in a lot of 1970s uh, visions of the future, I think you would probably see these two tendencies paired against each other. Right. You would have the people who have an affinity for technology and the people who have an affinity for nature and th- that's what's in opposition. But the movie actually identifies a different kind of opposition. It's just it's just the preservation of the environment versus the destruction of the environment. And that's that's not really related to whether you also like technology or not. Like, can't you easily imagine the horrible remake of this mm-hmm. in which the humans have to protect the forest from the robots who have been right. programmed to destroy the forest? Right, because they wouldn't want to be controversial. Yeah, right, you know, I mean, I'd see the... it. Uh, <laughs> it would probably be chop, Chopping Mall meets Silent Running uh, <laughs> in space, of course. but. Um, but I, yeah, it I'd would, watch it would that. be terrible in its own right. <sighs> well, that does segue into another thing that I want to talk about with regards to this movie, which is the way that environmental conservation and, and preservation is presented as a, a public issue and a public debate. So I, I think one may, maybe quibble I would have with this movie is that it seems to embrace a narrative um, – that I think unwittingly, but it does sort of fall into this common narrative, especially of, of past decades, that says human economic prosperity on the one hand and the preservation of the natural environment on the other hand are goals at odds with one another. And Dern's crewmates are fine with a world without forests and they say why they're fine with it. They basically say because industry, you know, the industrialization of the world has made resources plentiful for everybody and everybody has a job and and you've got everything you need, right? So there's like economic prosperity on the one hand, but then you've got the preservation of the forests as this thing in 
conflict with that. And Dern resists it. He, he takes a qualitative view that defends nature for its own sake and revels in the aesthetic qualities of nature over the synthetic landscapes. You know, it's all these qualitative judgments. How do you put that crap in your body, you know, when you eat that? You want to mm-hmm. go back to that, uh, you know, landscape where you never see a tree. It's all qualitative. It's all aesthetic. And I, I don't think this classic narrative about environmental conservation versus economic flourishing is actually a very accurate diagnosis of what the what the risks and benefits of environmental destruction are. Now, obviously, there are cases where you can, say, increase the efficiency of a business by dumping waste into a river rather than paying more to dispose of it, you know, in an environmentally friendly way. But these trade-offs are – they're almost always, I think, temporary. They're like temporary individual ways to leverage destruction of the natural environment for personal gain. I don't think that overall destruction of the natural environment leads to widespread long-term economic flourishing in general. It's more just sort of a temporary way for you to cheat. Right. And I mean it, it basically comes down to a question of – uh, how far down the road are you kicking the can? Yeah, is are you are you going? Is it going to be like uh, you know five years, ten years? Is it one generation? Is it two or three generations? Yeah. Uh, what is the what's the cost? Yeah, and and so it, it, this is because destruction of the natural environment, of course, as we talk about on the show all, all the time, leads to all kinds of costs and losses that are unpredictable and that everybody has to bear. Uh, just. To, to go back to the example of, you know, dumping industrial waste in a river, imagine every factory upstream says, OK, we can increase profits if we don't have to dispose of this stuff properly. We just dump it in the river. They dump it in the river, but now the farmers da- downstream can't use the river water to irrigate their crops. So they have to get their water in a way that's more costly and inefficient, or maybe they can't grow their crops at all or something. And here is a net, maybe a net economic loss, actually, from this, even r- disregarding all of the environmental devastation. This is just a loss to what pe- what kind of wealth people are able to produce. Uh, and so for the specific example of deforestation used in the movie, because in the 1970s, I think this was sort of the big environmental issue, right, that people talked about the most. It was the destruction of the forests, and that's why the, the forest geodesic domes are what the movie's all about. Yeah, l- luckily we've got that all taken care of. There's no more <laughs> deforestation. <laughs> no, it certainly is still a problem, but for some reason it, it's not like the main problem that comes to mind when people think about environmental problems. Now, I think it's probably been supplanted by the global issue of climate change, I guess. Right. But I mean, this is also part of the the, the problem, right? Because yeah, because the, they're related. Yeah, they're related. But also the messaging of the forest is so, so much easier mm-hmm. because there's an emotional connection to a definite physical location. Yes. You, you can basically say, hey, you like going to the forest, don't you? You like yeah. it. Even if you don't want to go in it, you probably like looking out the window at it. Uh, well, imagine if all that went away. Like that is a much e- – that's far easier for us to wrap our hands and heads around versus the realities of climate change. The, as though some of the, 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 the ramifications of climate change, um, you know, down the road, I mean, mm-hmm. when they are described, when you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, rising ocean waters, I think that still creates some scenarios that definitely should have an emotional, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, impact on anyone who hears them. Yeah. Uh, but the forest, I mean, you can talk about today. It's a thing you have now. I mean, people people feel losses more than they feel the loss of potential gains, mm-hmm. right? That's a psychological problem. Right. And if, if you say – uh, sometime in the future, there could be economic opportunities that would be lost because of 
you know, things about climate change, it's harder to picture. You can say if you're in a forest right now, imagine this forest is gone. Yeah. Like that's that's immediate. It's visceral. I, I think it reaches people in another way. Though, I mean, yeah, I think you could make the same argument like you're saying about, about sea level increase if you're in a coastal area or yeah. something. Um, but yeah, just giving the example of deforestation, uh, this is something that of course – I would say, you know, there are sort of like maybe aesthetic and even you people might call them spiritual reasons to value nature for its own sake. But imagine you don't and you're just – you're like uh, Dern's crewmates who only care about economic flourishing. They just want there to be resources for everybody and everybody has a job and all that. Uh, I mean even then deforestation I think would – wreaks devastating effects on those kinds of things. So deforestation leads to soil erosion, roots, you know, they hold soil in place. And then if you have deforestation, you get all these exposed surfaces everywhere without plant life to hold the soil in place. The soil erodes uh, during exposure to weather and water and that soil runoff drains into waterways and clogs them and, you know, washes away the good soil that you could be using for agriculture. And um, it, it's just – so there's a lot of economic catastrophe right there. There's disruption of the water table that happens through deforestation. There's uh, – deforestation can lead to widespread flooding, you know, economic catastrophes from flooding, mm -hmm. destruction of habitats and extinctions, of course, which can lead to downstream effects like the, you know, rise of new zoonotic diseases and things like that. Oh, yeah. Increase – yeah, like boosting the diseases that we're going to have in the future while at the same time uh, removing various biological agents from the world that – in which we could find potential – uh, cures and new antibiotics to help us battle those very diseases. Yeah. And then, of course, not to mention the way the, – the big thing, the way forests can help contribute to atmospheric dynamics. Of course, deforestation contributes to climate change, global warming. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's – it is not accurate to frame deforestation as an issue of like, well, you've got – wealth gains on the one hand and you've got protecting the environment on the other hand. Like protecting the environment is a is a crucial investment in the future of humankind, an economic investment. You destroy those forests and there will be so much lost uh, wealth and economic potential from that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but then again, I don't want to discount the, uh, of course, the, you know, the inherent value of nature for its own sake. Now, to, to place this film uh, in the context of U.S. environmental history, uh, which I think is, is interesting, uh, President Richard Nixon had only just created the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, in 1970. Yeah. Wow. And uh, it, it's interesting to – I was reading a little bit about this. I was looking at uh, – there was an Atlantic uh, uh, mini article. Actually, it's a gallery, Why Nixon Created the EPA, which mm -hmm. is an interesting read. And then the sciencehistory.org has Richard Nixon and the Rise of American Environmentalism because you, we tend not – Nixon comes up a lot recently. Uh, there are a lot of parallels being made today between our current uh, political um, – uh, uh, situation and uh, and Watergate and Nixon, uh -huh. et cetera. Uh, so we tend not to think about environmentalism and Nixon. <laughs> but but it is interesting to look at this time because, you know, given how tragically politicized climate change has become in the United States, it's almost staggering to realize that the, the National Environmental Policy Act enjoyed tremendous bipartisan support. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and 
politicians were responding to a very real pressing environmental danger at the local and national level, level or dangers, I should say. Was it in 1969 that the Cuyahoga River, River caught fire? Yes. Yeah, there was, I actually heard a piece on NPR just this morning talking about that. Yeah. And then, of course, in talking about how that, that falls into this, this whole uh, uh, situation with the, the creation of the EPA. Yeah. It's also interesting if you go back and look at exactly what uh, uh, was being said, even by Nixon himself and speeches and so forth. And there was there was kind of this holy reverence there for nature, even yeah. at times in, in Nixon's own words. Not to say that Nixon himself actually felt any of this. Uh, you know, he was very much, uh, you know, he, he and his people were very much responding to sort of the zeitgeist of the time and something that was, again, a bipartisan um, issue. Uh, but uh, at times, Nixon cast such environmentalism as being in the tradition of Republican Theodore Roosevelt. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think it was. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, the Republican Party, I think, has changed changed a lot between the time of Teddy Roosevelt and the 1970s. Yeah, absolutely. But but it, I think it is, uh, you know, it, it is, I think, helpful to to realize that environmentalism and, and environmental concerns um, – you know, have at, at plenty of times in our, our country's history been a, a bipartisan issue, been yeah. something that we can all agree on uh, is something that matters. And and I think there's a huge case to be made that that's, that's a part of, of of the American dream. You know, that is a part of, uh, of the, the, some of the best of America is, is what America has done uh, to sustain uh, bits of our natural environment, such as with the National Park uh, Services. It would be amazing if someone could figure out a vast sort of psychological program to just depoliticize environmental issues. Yeah. Um, it, it's really tragic the way they've taken on a, a, a partisan cast. And of course, that, you know, that leads to these bit just obvious solutions to environmental problems becoming these impossible political battles. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the interesting things about silent running is that they don't spend a tremendous amount of time uh, describing what life is like on Earth. No. You know, they allude to it. You certainly never really see it. And, uh, and, and it's – I think that's tantalizing and it makes us wonder what this world is like. What does this world become? Uh, and, and I think that the film is at least in part, you know, they're pushing the notion that humanity separated from nature is inherently sickened and it is lessened by that separation. And the other crew members don't mind eating tasteless feud cubes and nuking the world's last forest because they have no connection to nature anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, and per a, a discussion we had earlier over email, you know, there's a, there's a lot more focus in modern environmental discourses on, uh, you know, framing the production of, uh, the, of the environment in terms of its material benefit to humans. Uh, which, as we were just talking about, I mean, environmental conservation is not without material benefits to humans. But you notice that that's what people who advocate environmental conservation tend to talk about these right. days. They're thinking like, no, it's in your interest to protect the environment. This was a different time. I mean, the, the film presents a very inherent case for nature. It's this like that the forest in itself is a holy and beautiful thing that must be protected for its own sake. Yeah, the film, though, is is kind of pushing this more of a spiritual connection with it, um, which made me think of the microbiome. <laughs> because yeah. in some ways the micro microbiome and the, the effect, you know, getting into the, the, the microbes that live inside us and uh, their connection to the outside world, the interplay between us and our natural environment and, and its uh, microbiome, uh, you know, a lot of this can feel kind of spiritual and kind of magic mm -hmm. uh, at times. So I was reading uh, about this a little bit and we've certainly covered this on the show uh, in the past, but 
you know, uh, with our growing understanding of the microbiome, we, you know, we realize that there's this interplay between our internal microbial legions uh, and our exposure to the natural world. Forests and fields, if we can get them, but even access to a pet animal that a- has access to the outside can provide some level of this natural connection. You know, one of the things we often talk about with Charlie at home is that he brings us dirts. Oh, you're, yeah, your dog, uh, Charlie. Yeah, and that's something that's touched on in the book Never Home Alone uh, by Rob Dunn, a professor of applied ecology at North Carolina State University. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that book, he points out that you know, we still have a lot to learn, but it seems as if families in urban environments with dogs tend to have kids who are less prone to allergy and asthma because the dogs may actually be serving as this kind of vehicle, this kind of connection for the natural world microbes uh, that the humans uh, used to live in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're not getting out as nature as into nature as much as we should. But if we're letting the dog do it, if the dog's really getting its nose into nature, uh-huh. then it's kind of rubbing some of that, that that natural world, some of that microbiome off on us. It's a good reason to let the dog in the bed. Right. And, you know, naturally, there are microbes in the natural world that do us harm, others that are beneficial or at least seem kind of benign in the grand, grand balance of things. And, and that's something we've discussed in the show before as well. You know, our bodies, our, our beings are a vast multicellular system inhabited by microbial legions. And, our, and you can even make the argument that we are those microbial yeah, legions. Like and we, they're we, us. Yeah, we might not share the same DNA as them, but they are, in a sense, part of us. Right, and they play into the like our, our emotions and our our wants and needs, like this this manifestation of self that we you know have wrapped up in ego and and think of as being separate from the world and separate from nature is all a product of uh, of this interplay. Um, in our artificial environments mess with that balance. And, and that's today here on Earth. So imagine a world uh, such as the, the Earth of silent running with, with an even more severely damaged ecosystem, uh, you know, one in which vegetation has been pretty much eradicated. Mm-hmm. And now imagine that world's spacecraft. Because even if Lowell and the bots continually track in dirt, and even as they, uh, they, dist- they distribute pl- uh, plants around uh, the place and thrust melons at the other crew members, uh-huh. you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's still, uh, you know, a very artificial world outside of the uh, the the farm outside of the forest that they've sustained there. Well, I mean, I don't think this was envisioned by the filmmakers, but one thing you could say to interpret the film is it's long been a question of how would our microbiome be messed up by space travel yeah. uh, and by being confined to environments in space or on other planets, even if we bring along a lot of our soil and plants with us. You know, there might just be some ways in which the gravity environment, maybe the atmospheric difference, whatever, the, the different artificial environment somehow changes the microbial loads that we're exposed to and that we take into our bodies and this could th- this could change us it could change who we are it could make us sick it could affect our mental health it could do all kinds of things that we can't anticipate fully yet and so I wonder if maybe that's getting to Dern's character a little bit like Dern's yelling at people about a cantaloupe because he even though he's the one out there in the forest the forest and the dome in space doesn't have exactly the same kind of microbes it would back on earth and his his microbial uh, his microbiome is off, and he's he's getting a little antsy. Oh wow! So this it's almost like the idea of say a people who once had uh, you know an actual uh, you know visual or audible connection with God, and then when that goes away, uh, the, you have to sustain faith. 
and uh, of faith alone because uh, there is no like direct visible sign of the almighty oh. and, and that could, that's kind of what he's doing he is a prophet of the natural world but that via the loss of the the bio the microbiome uh microbiomedic connection uh must now rely on faith he has faith in the fruit faith in the cantaloupe uh but that actual connection to nature is gone all right we need to take one more break but we'll be right back to finish up the discussion all right, we're back. Uh, you know, th- this film also made me think a lot about uh, E.O. Wilson's biophilia hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, this We did a, an, an entire episode on this uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, but this is basically the idea is that, uh, you know, we, we have this innate tendency to focus on life and lifelike processes. And uh, in the more extreme vor- versions of the hypothesis, there might even be a genetic uh, component to that. Yeah. So he, he basically says like we're wired to want to be in and around nature and living things, that completely synthetic environments are not, uh, are not what our minds crave, that there's an inherent predisposition against that and it's not just cultural. Right. So if, if biophilia hypothesis is true – and I think it would be great if it if it were. And uh, and E.O. Wilson is and 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 has been one of the I think the greatest minds uh, writing uh, and communicating about our connection with the natural world. Uh, but but if that were not, you can see that in the way he shoves his hand into a mound of yes. fire ants. <laughs> yeah. yeah, look uh, at them biting me. Yeah, and and also and unlike Lowell in the the film, like he's uh, he's very believe like you you're like yes this this guy is not abrasive uh, about <laughs> it like you just totally buy into everything he, he's saying. But uh, if biophilia hypothesis uh, is true, it's difficult to imagine a species with such uh, an innate connection to nature reaching such a fallen place as you see the world in Silent Running, you know, mm-hmm. because most of the characters uh, that we, most of the humans we meet in the movie and then presumably most of the humans on Earth are totally okay with this or they've become totally okay with this disconnection from nature. Yeah. Now, another way you could argue it is that, uh, again, I don't think this was necessarily intended by the filmmakers, but you could also argue that Lowell's crewmates maybe are only they're, – they're only so happy to disregard nature because they are the few humans that are exposed to it. Like they're mm. – the fact that they can be walking through these forests or actually they generally tend to drive through them on little go-karts, but that they can drive through these forests and be exposed to nature, that is what makes them feel like they don't need it, you know, because yeah. you don't appreciate what you've already got. And that maybe all the people back on Earth are miserable. We don't hear from them. We don't know what life is like from uh, from their point of view. Uh, but perhaps these other crewmates are just like there and, and not appreciating the how lucky they are to be one of the like five humans who gets to walk among the trees. All right. You know, and this, this brings us to another question uh, that I had uh, uh, in thinking about the film. Something I hadn't really thought about much in the past with mm-hmm. past viewings of it, but I started wondering, like this, this earth that we're told uh, about, an earth where like the vast majority or if not all botanical life is over. Yeah. Like what would that even be like? Uh, you know, what, because as we've discussed, like the connection between the botanical world and, and the human world and the world of animals uh, is essential. Uh, how would a planet exist without that? What would a world without plants be? Right. 
And I ran across a, a couple of, of sources on this. There's a, an article from New Scientist from uh, 2007 uh, titled, If All the Oxygen-Producing Plants Disappeared Suddenly, How Long Would It Take for Us to Die? And then I also found a really good source uh, on the website for uh, uh, the University of uh, UC uh, Santa Barbara uh, at uh, ucsb.edu. And uh, both of them get into it. They start breaking down the numbers. Uh, and there's no, like, definitive answer for this because you end up having to – you're talking about an entire planet's worth of atmosphere and, uh, you know, and then the, the interplay between the entire botanical world and the entire animal world and, and other factors as well. Um, basically, the big take-home is that, of course, um, ultimately we would die. Oh, we would right. all die. It would be it would be catastrophic. Uh, that's that much is for certain. I mean, the basic school grade explanation still applies. Animals breathe oxygen and exhale CO two. Plants need the CO two and produce oxygen. We're in balance, all of us, and humans do not have a privileged status in all of this. According to UCSB, uh, if all the plants went away, just like magically, yeah. they're gone. Um, you know, it wouldn't be an end to oxygen on Earth. Uh, we'd still have an atmosphere's worth of oxygen, and that's roughly uh, two quintillion pounds of oxygen remaining. Uh, we, we, oh, it sounds like plenty. Yeah, we'd it be sounds fine. like plenty, right? <laughs> but, but of course, it's not just us, right? There are all those animals that need it too. So mm -hmm. to simplify it, okay, let's go ahead and kill off all the animals because uh, it's not expressly stated in Silent Running, but we might well imagine that most, if not all, of the animals are gone as well. Why not? Right. Okay, so if all the animals were gone as well, that would leave the human species with 1,014 years worth of oxygen, okay? That's one take on it. But they also break it down so that we might be looking um, at more like uh, 1,200 years of breathable oxygen, but then the increase in CO2 would elevate global temperatures, and other concerns would also probably bring uh, this down even uh, further, and we'd be talking more like one to four centuries of breathable oxygen. Okay. Now, another take is that we'd have several thousands of years worth uh, of breathable oxygen because of the vast pools of oxygen in the atmosphere, the origins of which stem from microorganisms to begin with. Uh, plus, there would be reserves of oxygen locked up in H2O and in carbon dioxide that we can conceivably, you know, uh, uh, break down using our technology. Certainly, if we have the technology to send forests into orbit, then maybe they also have the technology, uh, you know, to, to do some widespread breaking down of ocean waters into breathable atmosphere. Okay. But um, another huge issue, a huge issue, is that without plants, the entire food pyramid essentially collapses. Right. What would anything eat? <laughs> yeah. So I would, I would sure hope that those disgusting food, food cubes that the crew members are eating on the Valley Forge are tasty and that they don't require plants or animal life. I don't know what they'd be made of. Well, I um, guess they could be made from what uh, nutrients gained from microbial mats or cyanobacteria. Yeah, things like that. But, but otherwise, there's a, there's a very strong argument to be made that we would start before we ran out of, of oxygen. Um, now, other uh, uh, and estimates really kind of vary. Uh, James Lovelock, for instance, originator of Gaia hypothesis, uh, estimated we'd be looking at uh, half a million years. Um, and then uh, that New Scientist article I mentioned, they threw out a few different estimates by uh, uh, different folks, ranging from a few hundred years to a few thousand years, again, with the food concerns and possible poisoned uh, air concerns as well. Right, because we'd also be breathing out CO2 and pumping CO2 into the atmosphere via our machines that would be not getting processed by the right. plants. And, of course, all of this, again, is, is just very broad and big, big picture and not getting into all the other challenges that would occur if all the plants died. 
Uh, how does this square with the sci-fi earth that is alluded to in Silent Running? Uh, you know, could the leaders of such a world, could the people and the institutions actually allow uh, such a, a cataclysm to come to pass and then scuttle the key plan to correct it? You Surely know? not. People would never let anything <laughs> like that happen. Yeah, I w- that's the thing. You know, you would, you would hope – not certainly, and I remember as a kid thinking, well, you know, on some level, like surely they wouldn't do this. Why would they do this? Because there's never a real great reason given, right? They're just like, oh, well, we've got to put these uh, the spaceship back into commercial use, so yeah. we're just jettisoning all these uh, forests, even though presumably they're up there because they want to bring botanical life back to Earth in the future. So, um, yeah, details of how we managed uh, to destroy all botanical life on Earth aside in this uh, film, I I think we can well imagine us as a a people, as a species, continuing on, satisfied with assurances from the more optimistic estimates that give us, you know, many centuries or even, you know, thousands of years to correct the problem. Yeah, they'll fix it down the road. Yeah, they'll fix it down the road. Look look at these new technologies they're talking about. You know, essentially, we just kick the can down that that road for our children, for our grandchildren to solve. We take comfort in the pending technologies of orbital forests and life on other worlds, oxygen extraction and whatever, you know, process produces those uh, much little uh, food cubes, you know, we'd, so we'd grow complacent. We'd refuse to change. Uh, and, and one day someone might be in a position to say, you know, these space forests are incredibly expensive. Why are we, we dealing with this? Uh, let's just get rid of them. And I, I think all of that line falls in line with how we have been thinking about our environment, Just despite, you know, a lot of tremendous environmental uh, progress uh, you know, certainly just since, uh, you know, the, since 1970. Uh, and, and despite all the, you know, the, the, the very passionate voices in environmentalism, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, c- collectively we can still make these kinds of errors. You know, the, the, the world of silent running, which is presented as a cautionary tale. Right. It's not, a, it's not presented as a, hey, what would happen if all the forests died uh, sort of thing. It's like saying here is what we do not want. But here is a here is a, an, a you know an exaggerated circumstance that is in many ways very much in keeping uh, with how humans think about the environment or can think about the environment if they don't listen uh, to the lulls of the world. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we're obviously facing problems like this right now. I mean, it, the the most pressing global environmental problem now being climate change, and like. It's one of those cases where it's it's pretty clear what steps we need to be taking right now or, you know, really need to be taking yesterday, what we absolutely need to be taking right now. And people the, people just don't want to deal with it. They just rather – I mean, you've got some people, I think, who manage to delude themselves into thinking, no, it's, you know, it's all a hoax or whatever. It's a Chinese hoax mm-hmm. or it's whatever. It's just a, a bunch of alarmism. And then I think you've got a lot of other people who – they don't really know of any reason to disagree with the science. They'd just rather not think about it. You know, they'd just yeah. rather kick the can. And it, the, the days of kicking the can, even as, a, as an opportunity, grow mighty short. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've, I think it was, it was actually Alan Watts, um, uh, the uh, Canadian science fiction author, um, who, uh, you know, who, who pointed uh, especially to the 1970s as being like the time when, you know, we should have gotten really serious about environmentalism. Yeah. And if we had gotten really serious about environmentalism, we could have avoided the even tenser scenario we find ourselves in today. Um, but here we are. But like the scenario uh, in Silent Running, 
all the forests have not been jettisoned into space yet. No. Uh, we're, 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 we're nowhere near there just yet. We need a Joan Baez song to get everybody on the same page here. I know. I wish we could actually play one of those Joan Baez songs on the podcast, but um, I, I think that would be uh, problematic. I found some, uh, some, some music that has strikes a similar vibe that perhaps we can uh, lead out with here at the end of the episode. So often we want to play a song on the podcast, but it all lies behind the door of the, uh, the intellectual property jail that we cannot free. The only place we would be able to play it would be in orbit uh, aboard. A, no, actually, probably not, because I think a lot of these uh, these uh, the, the legal documentations for IP, like they talk about the entire universe. Uh-huh. I remember the first time I saw that, I'm like, really? With the entire universe? Like I would go to Mars and I still couldn't play this Joan Baez song? Um, you know, even if Joan Baez gave me the thumbs up, like a record company would be, would, would just say, no, I'm sorry, the label says the entire universe. So unless they send a robotic probe to serve you, yeah. <laughs> you would have to you know, extend into an alternate universe in which the rights were different. Commander Lamb, you've been served. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, there you have it. Uh, Silent Running, uh, still one of my favorite films. Very influential. Uh, this without this film, we wouldn't have Mystery Science Theater three thousand either. Oh yeah, clearly modeled on yeah, it. Yeah, right? I mean, uh, Joe Hodgson is is very up and forward about that. That like he saw it in college and it. Uh, was a huge inspiration to him, and uh, and that's how we ended up with a uh, human and three robots in space watching terrible movies instead of tending to forests. The film is, uh, yeah, the film's out there. It's available uh, wherever you get your movies. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're going to go ahead and call this episode, but, again, we're trying to do one of these a month. Uh, we've had some wonderful uh, suggestions from listeners already about what films we should consider covering in the future, uh, but we want to continue to hear from you. And also, if you have thoughts about Silent Running, did you love it? Did you hate it? Uh, did, did it? What role did it have in your uh, your own upbringing? Uh, share your thoughts with us. Uh, did you see it in the theater when it came out? Uh, I would love to hear about th- that experience as well. In the meantime, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. Uh, that is that's the Valley Forge um, of our <laughs> operations here. That's our mothership. Um, it has links out to our various social media accounts, and it also has a module on it that instead of being a forest, is our discussion module. Um, uh, on Facebook. That's just a discussion group where a lot of folks hang out and discuss the show. It's and the one lovely green place on Facebook. It is, yeah. Uh, long may it not be jettisoned into the, the black void of, uh, of social media uh, emptiness. Uh, but anyway, those are all wonderful things to, to check out. If you want to support the show, just make sure you rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Leave us some stars. Leave a nice comment. It really helps out the, uh, helps out the show uh, when it comes to the almighty algorithms that rule our world. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.